What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. By the way, heads up, Thursday, June 6th, I'll be in New York City at 7.30 p.m. at the Strand. And it's going to be great fun. Looking forward to that. Monday, June 11th, I'll be in Washington, D.C. at 6.30 at Busboys and Poets. That's an hour earlier. That's at the K Street Northwest location. Wednesday, June 11th on HBO, you will be able to see a movie that I'm in that Leo DiCaprio produced and is narrating called Ice on Fire. It, it was rolled out in Cannes last week. The movie is spectacular. I mean, there's some just absolutely brilliant scientists in it and a lot of great stuff. I'm in there basically calling for the fossil fuel barons to be called up before the Hague on charges of whatever you can come up with. So there's that. That's coming up. Donald Trump and the Republican Party are so committed to keeping their billionaire donors happy, particularly those who make their money from fossil fuels, that they not only deny science, but they're now trying to wreck it, to actually seriously wreck it. And the way that they're trying to do this, if you look at the projections for climate change as a consequence of the rise in carbon dioxide, all tornadoes and thunderstorms and rainstorms, all this kind of stuff, the atmosphere is a degree warmer, which means it can hold 6% more moisture. And 6% more moisture means bigger floods, more violent storms, all that kind of stuff. So that's all happening, right? But if you look out over the next 80 years, right, from now until 2100, 81 years, what you see is that the path, that the upward path of temperature on our planet, I mean, it's going up. Kind of steadily, I mean, from, from 1980, roughly, or 1950 to today, it's gone up about a degree Celsius, about a degree, about 1.7 degrees Fahrenheit. We're in that neighborhood. And between now and, say, 2040, it's probably going to go up another half a degree. Right? That's another 20 years. But then after 2040, it really starts to escalate because that's the point at which that blanket of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere has held enough heat that the planet starts going, oh my God, it's hot, get this quilt off me. And so the really, really scary numbers, I mean, the really, if, if, uh, on a, on a, if we don't do anything scenario, 
The really scary numbers start appearing in 2050, 2060, 2070, 2080, 2090, and 2100, in the six decades after 2040. From now to 2040, it's still kind of that linear path that started in the 1980s. And all the climate scientists all around the world and the policymakers in the EU and here in the United States and everybody, you know, in trying to figure this stuff out, all these policymakers have been, have been making their policy suggestions, you know, hey, we need to cut emissions and all this kind of stuff, based on we don't want to end up there in 2100 or in 2090 or 2080. I mean, in 2080, Louise and I yesterday were at our daughter's house and playing with our grandson, right? He's a year old. In 2080, he'll be 60. He'll be younger than I am right now in 2080. And in 2080, the, the planet is going to be, according to all these projection, projections, in an absolute screaming crisis. I mean, possibly a civilization-ending crisis if we don't do something now. So what's Trump doing? You know, him and people like Myron Ebel, who has been on this program a number of times back in the days when we used to debate climate change, right, a decade ago, Myron used to come on and say, oh, there's no such thing and it's not to worry about and carbon dioxide's food for plants and all this kind of stuff, right? And so what these guys are doing is they're saying, okay, from now on, right, the, the government has to come up with these climate assessments, Every five years, I believe it is, that they come up with a climate assessment. And it's, you know, a hundred, a bunch of different agencies inside the federal government. And they're all working on this thing. And they put out this climate assessment. And they say, okay, this is our best guess of what's going to happen between now and 2100. And out of that information, we then plan policy. And it was based on that information that, that Barack Obama said, okay, we're going to cut back on tailpipe emissions. We're going to insulate houses. We're going to shut down coal plants, coal-fired power plants, and replace them with uh, natural gas or solar or wind or whatever. But, you know, we're going to start cutting emissions. Because it really looks bad after 2040, and we don't want to go there. So Trump has basically ordered all the science agencies, or actually what I should say is the, the, the billionaires who made their money on fossil fuels, who own Trump and the entire Republican Party, have given the word there is going to be no evaluation done after 2040. We are not looking at anything after 2040. The official numbers are going to be between now and 2040, the next 21 years. That's it. That's all we're going to look at. We're going to pretend that the end of time is going to occur in 2040. Or that everything is going to reboot. Or that, I, you know, maybe this is Mike Pence's thing. Maybe it's going to be the rapture, right, in 2040. But whatever it is, they've decided, no, nah, we're not going to have any science after, you know, we're just not even going to look at that. And Greta Thunberg, I was watching a, a riff of hers over the weekend, and she said, you know, I've had politicians tell me that panic is not a useful thing. And I agree. But when your house is on fire, a certain amount of panic is in order. If you want to get out of the house before you die, or if you want to put the fire out. And she's right. So what we have right now is that in exchange for money, the Republican Party and Donald Trump are literally welcoming the end of the world. Or at least the end of the world for humans and for possibly as much as 80 or 90 percent of all those species on Earth. I mean, this is just friggin' crazy. 
In the studio with me is the independent journalist and staff reporter for Truth Out, and more importantly, the author of the new book, The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption, Dar Jamail. Dar, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Great to be with you. It's great having you here in the studio. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, real, it's a real treat. And also, apropos of this topic, on June 11th, HBO is going to be premiering a movie that I'm in and that Leo DiCaprio produced, Ice on Fire. So, you know, it's like the end of ice, right? <laughs> and, the, and the Arctic is on fire. Recap this. What is the end of ice? What is our situation right now? There? Well, our situation is that we are in runaway climate crisis of feedback loops that have kicked in. And, you know, the, I know this isn't news to you, Tom. You've been covering this for a long, long time. But I, in this book, have tried to bring it home to people in a visceral way of how far along we really are. The fact that best case scenario now, if we stopped all CO2 emissions on a dime, there's several scientists that believe we have minimum 3C warming baked into the system if we did all best case scenarios right now. And that means we are set up for a future on this planet where even the possibility of a continuation of the human species is now in question. Is that locked in? We can't say for sure, but we are without a doubt in crisis. I mean, for example, since 1992, half of all CO2 emissions ever emitted have occurred just since then. And so things it's are speeding up. Right it's speeding up. Everything is speeding up way beyond worst case projections. We have the spectrum of opinion on what's going on from obviously, you know, the, the BS end of it, the, the Donald Trump and the petrobillionaires, uh, you know, oh, we're, we're not even going to look at the science, you know, we're not going to talk about this. So on the other end, we had Guy McPherson in the studio a couple weeks ago, and he's like, it's over, sorry, you know, just eat, drink and be happy, because there will be no human race in another hundred years. I'm not there yet. <laughs> I'm not either. <laughs> but... I think that the gravity of the situation is something that needs to be discussed in a meaningful way. I was talking a couple days ago about Louise and I spent the weekend with our one-year-old grandson. And Trump doesn't even want to look at 2080, right? He wants to stop at 2040. 2080, my grandson's going to be younger than I am right now. And what kind of world will we have in 2080? In 2080. Uh, according, according to even the conservative scientists. I mean, I, I, by conservative scientists, I'm talking about the IPCC, which is one of the most conservative organizations out there. They don't even issue a report unless literally every single scientist involved 100% agrees with it. If there's one dissenting voice, it doesn't come out. So this is as cautious as you can get. Which is why I'm extremely critical of the IPCC. Even their sure. mid-range temperature projections are only possible with carbon sequestration using technology that doesn't even exist yet. It's not scalable to the level that it would have to occur to meet even their mid-range projections. Their current worst case projections by 2100 for temperature are 4 to 5 C. But that flies in the face of even the International Energy Agency, not exactly a left-leaning media outlet. They represent fossil fuel interests around the world. They've stated that even if we maintain our current economic paradigm, it virtually guarantees as much as a 6C rise by 2050. That came out after, actually, analysts for BP and Shell said that we're locked into what could be as much as a 5C rise also by 2050. Now, now we throw on these words, 5C rise, 6C rise. We're talking degrees Celsius. Right. If you look at the historical record, when was the last time that the planet increased its temperature by 6 degrees in a century? 
and what was the consequence of that? Well, it catastrophic consequence. I mean, the last time there was this much CO2 in the atmosphere as we have right now today was about 3 million years ago, and the steady state temperature of the planet ranged from 4C to 10C, depending on where you lived. And it's stunning when you think about that. Another thing to consider is look at the cataclysmic changes. Wait a minute, that's a, that's a worldwide ice age. Right, right. Right. Basically. I, I, no, I mean higher than they are right now. Oh, sorry I about see. that. I'm sorry. Right. I, okay. So take where we are now, add 4 to 10 C, depending on right. where you live around the planet. And it, it gets to where, you know, that's where we come back to the end of ice. I mean, since the 1970s, Antarctic melting has increased sixfold. More recently, another study by the same lead scientist, Dr. Eric Rigno of UC Irvine, and also NASA-affiliated, Greenland has seen a fivefold increase in melting. Everything is ramping up. I mean, we, we look at glaciers in the United States. Several studies have shown probably no active glaciers in the contiguous 48 by 2100. So what does that do to water? What does that do to ecosystems? What does that do to other species? So if we talk about 2080, we looking at the U.S., it's going to be really hard to live in the Southwest because of not enough water. What happens to agriculture? Look at what just happened to the Midwest with flooding. We're looking at a very different country just by 2080. Although with that 4 to 10 degrees C warmer world 3 million years ago, our distant ancestors, I mean, uh, Homo sapiens had not yet emerged. Here's where a two to three hundred thousand years old as a species but you know there was there was complex life on this planet i mean it wasn't it wasn't the permian extinction kind of disaster which i think was around 10c wasn't it yeah 10 to 12c 10 to 12c is the and that killed 97 percent of all life on earth right and pretty much anything larger than a rat on land so if this is the, I mean, we're looking right now, for example, we're just having these wild tornadoes across the Midwest and flooding across the Midwest. It seems to me that even over the short term, the biggest concern that we should be having is not, oh my God, Miami's gonna be underwater, but rather that civilization exists on a fairly thin thread. You know, the civilization is like, it can only emerge and it can only be sustained under conditions that are conducive to supporting the population that is around, uh, producing the food for that population, and maintaining the health of the ecosystems that maintain that population. We've already shot way past that. We're consuming one and a half times at least of the productive capacity of the planet. I've seen numbers as high as 400%. So when does this start? I mean, at what point looking at the science, at what point does climate disruption become so severe that we start seeing breakdown, governmental breakdown, basically? We're already there. Look at the Arab Spring. Look at Syria. Look at the refugee crisis besetting Europe. Look at how big of a factor that is on our own southern border with what's happening in Central America. All you have to do is look at the NASA climate modeling up to 2050, 2070, 2080, and Central America basically becomes unlivable. It's going to be really hard to grow food there. That can be said for a whole lot of the Midwestern U.S. and certainly the Southwestern U.S. But if you look around the world, if or, or even just right here in the U.S., look at Paradise, California. There's no future tense to the crisis to people there, certainly not the more than 80 people that died and, and their families that remain. Look at the panhandle of Florida with the hurricanes that have come through there and obliterated entire neighborhoods 
neighborhoods. They're in it. I mean, we are in it. We have climate refugees right now in the United States from those places I just talked about, from dozens, or upcoming from dozens of, of villages across Alaska, people living on the eroding coast in the thawing permafrost. So we're already in it. The question is, how long does it take for those impacts to erode away this bubble, the veneer that a lot of us still live in now, and we start having our own food crises right here in big cities in the United States? Yeah, it's remarkable stuff. The book is The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption with Dar Jamail. Dar, I'm going to bring you back here in about a half hour and we'll continue this conversation. I want to get Stephanie and Suzanne in too. So we're talking about climate and the survival of the human race. Some rather important issues. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Dar Jamail's new book, The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption. Hey, thanks for listening to our podcast. You know, lots and lots of people are using medical marijuana for pain relief and help them sleep and things like that. And I think a lot of them don't even realize that one of the most important ingredients in in medical marijuana is the CBD. And it also appears in hemp. And hemp doesn't get you high. It's the THC that gets you high. This is the CBD I'm talking about. CBD is an anti-inflammatory. It's a potent pain reliever. And it is now available, right? Just as pure CBD. It's made from hemp. And so it's totally legal. Uh, New Leaf Naturals is the company that makes the, the CBD oil that I... Uh, you know, Louise and I both really, really like the very best. It's NU Leaf Naturals. New is spelled NU. NewLeafNaturals.com is the website. And if you use the code TOM, T H O M, you'll get 30% off and free shipping. So check out the 100% organic, highly concentrated, no additional additives grown right here in the United States. Only ingredient is hemp. This is all legal stuff non-toxic, potent pain relieving, and anti-inflammatory properties. So go to newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com to get 30% off and free shipping. Use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at newleafnaturals.com. The best place for premium cannabinoid wellness, newleafnaturals.com. Tom Arvin here with you, and uh, in the studio with me right now is Suzanne York. Suzanne is the director of Transition Earth. Transition-Earth.org is the website, nonprofit based out of Berkeley. Yes. Do I have that right? Yeah. Uh, California. And previously a senior writer and program director with the Institute for Population Studies in Berkeley. And Suzanne, let's talk about the relationship between climate, population, and some of the the human variables here. Let's start with, for example, human rights. Has the population of the Earth, has the population of the United States, grown beyond a sustainable boundary? That's a good question, Tom, and thanks for having me on the show. Sure. Um, It's a tough topic. It's easy to get caught up in the numbers, but the focus should always be on human rights. We're talking about people that are here on the planet, and we want to respect the rights of people that are here, especially the reproductive rights, but also keep it within the context of the planet that we we live in, and protecting the environment is also critically important. So at Transition Earth, we look for a balance between human rights and the environment, environmental rights in particular, to get to the more you know, proverbial sustainable planet, um, but always putting human rights at the forefront. But with regard to population, are we beyond sustainable right now? It seems to be that way. Yeah. 
Uh, you know, we're at 7.7 .7 billion people, and then we're... Yeah, it's, it's really mind-boggling when you think about it. You know, all of human history and the first billion people was in 1800. The second billion people was in 1930. You know, when Franklin Roosevelt was sworn into office, there were only two billion people. And when John Kennedy was sworn into office, that was the year 1960, that we hit three billion people. It's like we're, we're hitting this exponential curve. You know, we're, we're adding a billion people every dozen or so years. And it's just, it's, um, well, unsustainable is a word that gets thrown around a lot. So... How directly does this, this explosion of humanity affect human rights, women's rights specifically? Well, there's a lot of inequity in the world and there's a lot of weak women's rights. And we have a history of patriarchy and colonialization and globalization that have like, suppressed people's rights. Mm -hmm. So by focusing more on women's rights and meeting their needs for reproductive health, maternal health, child health, we can better empower communities to meet their needs and the focus should always be on women and providing education and access to healthcare, making sure they understand it and also dealing with women that have no say in how they live their lives when they, you know, they're under the throes of their husband or, or family or a different patriarchal system. Um, we want to be sure that they understand what options are available to them, what might work for them, and it's always focused on voluntary reproductive healthcare. Yeah. There's a lot of theories about this, but one of the ones that I find fascinating is that patriarchy really took hold with not the advent of agriculture specifically, as Dan Quinn suggested, but before that with the advent of pastoralism. Uh, when we started herding animals, then the human race started viewing female animals as machines that could produce more food, essentially then started viewing women as machines that could produce more humans, specifically for things like armies and whatnot. And pastoralism, the rise of pastoralism 20, 30,000 years ago in the Middle East seems to be tied to this, this kind of violence. And if there's anything to that, it makes you wonder, you know, what would it take to go back prior to that in the mindset of saying, well, no, we're all just humans here, you know, that, that there should be equality. And it seems to me that the number one thing that would set that up, and we see this in the availability of women's rights or the power of women's movements around the world, most in wealthy nations, is when there's not fighting over resources. Right. Does that make sense? Am I, is there anything there? There's always this inequitable access to resource around the world, and so mm -hmm. that should be the prime, and one of the prime factors is making sure that there's a level playing field. And women tend to be better managers of you know, things like household goods or when they have money coming in, they spend it on the family versus men that may spend it on alcohol or other, you know, gambling or other things. So when you talk about pastoralism, you know, we're just kind of looking at people, you know, as functions of like, let's just produce right. more so we can, you know, right. ultimately, so there's more people to buy goods. So, right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, is, is there a particular mindset that needs to be broken? Absolutely. You know, right. I'm, I'm looking at this yeah. whole abortion debate, and I, yesterday I read Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion, and he went off on this rant about birth control, mm -hmm. how birth control was essentially a, a device of eugenics. And I view this as, you know, what Clarence Thomas is talking about as an attempt to control women. That's, you're spot on. Yeah, it's always been about controlling women. And we see that now, unfortunately, in the U.S., how we're, you know, stepping backwards on reproductive rights, and it's Decisions are being made by men, older men, normally older white men, and women don't have any say, and so the, they're the ones that are being hit the hardest 
obviously. Yeah. It seems also that if we want to save this mess, that women have more to contribute to this than men, given that men arguably, in, in the context of patriarchy, are the cause of this problem, or many of these problems. Yeah. Well, they always say if men had babies, it would be a different story. Oh, yeah. So, uh, abortion would be, sacri yeah, yeah. would be a sacrament. Yeah. You know, yeah. Suzanne York is the uh, director of Transition Earth, transition-earth.org. And welcome back to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Last Hours of Humanity, Warming the World to Extinction, a book about extinction. The climate scientists' warnings have come true. There is more carbon in our atmosphere trapping heat and moisture than ever before in the 165,000-year history of the human race. We are on the verge of the first ice-free summer in the Arctic in three million years. And back then, the Earth was a very different place from the one currently cradling us. The consequences of a warming planet are appearing much faster than had been projected by climate scientists of just a decade ago. The most dire warnings, rising oceans, freak storms, and agricultural collapse, they're all taking place right now. And it's going to get worse. But now other voices have entered the fray. Those of geologists who study the longer-term implications and histories of a planet undergoing rapid global warming. Specifically, they are focused on extinctions. The climate scientists, geologists, and those from related scientific disciplines need to continue talking to each other because at some point we may be able to see the critical moment in which the current climate crosses from the realm of a global destabilizer to a global extinction event. We must wake up. It's hard to imagine life without Earth. We take the vast variety of life on this planet and even our own existence for granted. But numerous times in our planet's history, life as we know it has come close to it disappearing entirely. We call these events mass extinctions. And we even teach schoolchildren about those times of great death on our planet. For example, we know that long ago on a much more unstable planet, the dinosaurs were killed by an asteroid striking the Earth. This leads many people to believe that as long as we don't see an asteroid hurtling toward the planet, all is well. But this is not rational thinking for several reasons. The asteroid impact that killed the dinosaurs and started a major mass extinction is the only event having to do with outer space that we can trace with any certainty. And new science indicates that the asteroid impact itself wasn't what killed the dinosaurs. It was the global warming that followed it. New science has discovered a common theme in all of the extinctions in the past, and it's woven right into the global fabric of today as yet another mass extinction threatens our planet. That global consistent thread is global warming. We have had six extinctions in the billion-year history of life on our planet. Each sharp spike in the chart below indicates one of these mass extinctions. There's a chart on the page. Um, occurring about 450 million years ago, the Ordovician slash Silurian mass extinction devastated marine life, which at the time dominated the planet. In a series of two extinctions, 60 and 70% of all life on the planet was taken, respectively. Then, fewer than 100 million years later, the planet was rocked again. The Denovian period was capped off by a 20 million year death march. It killed off 70% of life on Earth. This included many coral reefs, which didn't return for another 100 million years. We know of the KT extinction, the Cretaceous-Tertiary extinction, which occurred 65 million years ago, ending the reign of the dinosaurs. There was also an extinction event 200 million years ago, known as the Triassic-Jurassic mass extinction. But none of these extinctions explains the huge spike shown in the center of the previous chart. 
That one happened 250 million years ago and was the worst mass extinction of species event in the history of our planet. It was the extinction of all extinctions. Referred to as the Great Dying, the Permian Mass Extinction took out at least 95% of all life on the planet in fewer than 100,000 years, an instant in geological time. Professor Paul Wignall of the University of Leeds and an expert on mass extinctions told me that the Permian was the greatest crisis that life on Earth has ever suffered. Only in the past two decades has the cause of the Permian extinction been understood. It was speculated that an asteroid impact may have been the trigger, but more recent research by Professor Wignall, geologists, and other scientists around the world have revealed the true trigger came from deep within the Earth. The permanent mass extinction was initiated by a colossal flow of lava in an area of what is now Siberia. That was the trigger, but not the killer. The killer was under the water and under the ice, where trillions of tons of greenhouse gases, largely derived from carbon and frozen in the form of crystalline methane, lay in wait. Thus, global warming is the force behind the death of nearly everything on the planet during the Permian mass extinction. That point is well illustrated. You can again see the spikes of mass extinctions measured by the increase in global temperatures, with the largest spike representing the Permian mass extinction. Wignall told me, there have been a lot of disasters and crises in the geological past. It's interesting to study them because they may have a comparison to today. He added, I think it is certainly extremely significant that a lot of the main crises of the past are associated with global warming, with obvious implications for the present day. The sixth mass extinction may even rival the speed and intensity of the Great Permian mass extinction, but the sixth is not represented on either of the two previous charts. That's because it's the one happening today, right now, all around us. And then we go on to document how the burning of fossil fuels is throwing an amount of carbon into the atmosphere, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, that's relatively similar to what happened with that giant volcanic eruption in Siberia 250 million years ago with the Permian mass extinction, and how it could be leading to a major extinction event. The book is The Last Hours of Humanity, Warming the World to Extinction. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Stephanie Miller here. If you watch 60 Minutes and you own a home, you just got very nervous. I did. The FBI's former head of cybercrimes warned homeowners that foreign and domestic thieves can steal your home and do it all online. That's because home titles and mortgages are kept in databases that can be hacked. If you have equity in your home, here's how they get you. They simply forge their name onto your home's title, use your home as collateral to borrow cash, and stick you with the payments. And no bank or identity theft program protects you. You need Home Title Lock, America's leading title and mortgage guardian. For pennies a day, Home Title Lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title and mortgage. If cyber thieves tamper with it, we mobilize to help shut it down. You may already be a victim. Here's how to find out. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register for your free title scan and report. $100 value, free with sign-up. Don't let cyber thieves steal your home. Go to HomeTitleLock.com like I did. That's HomeTitleLock.com. One more time, that's HomeTitleLock.com. It's your one. Tom Hartman here with you. And Stephanie Feldstein in the studio right now. She is the Population and Sustainability Director at the Center for Biological Diversity, which is a national nonprofit conservation organization, the website biologicaldiversity.org. Do I have all that right? 
I do. Cool. Let's just define terms. What is biological diversity and why is it important? Well, you know, we recently had this report that came out talking about just how important biological diversity is from UN scientists where they identified that Biological diversity is essentially, we're talking about wildlife and wild places, what's keeping our planet healthy and functional, and frankly, a better place to live as well. And, you know, we recently saw this report from UN scientists that said that in the coming decades, we are going to see a million or more species go extinct, that we are in the midst of an extinction crisis. And they also talked about what that means for humans. I mean, that loss is incredible in itself, but they also talked about what that means for humans, how that affects the ecosystems that we rely on for things like clean water and clean air and food. If people want a metaphor, you know, the human body is a pretty reasonable one. You know, you, you can operate with only one kidney, right? But when both kidneys are gone, you're in trouble. You know, if you, if you, you lose your liver, you know, it's a, or lose half your liver and one of your kidneys and maybe one of your lungs. And, and, then you're in trouble. Yeah, right. and, then, and then your left leg goes. And then, you know, and, and it's like, at what point does the entire system just shut down and basically die? Because in biological systems like our human bodies or like any other complex biological system without all these interacting and interrelated pieces it just doesn't work how close are we to breakdowns of biological systems around the world well we've already seen a lot of the impacts i mean some of it we see through some of the climate impacts that dar was talking about earlier but we also see it in these unprecedented droughts um, those are ecosystems that have broken down we've seen it people often refer to the amazon as as the lungs of the planet and we've seen how much of the Amazon has been destroyed, much of it for agriculture, particularly animal agriculture. So we're already seeing this breakdown where it's harder and harder for farmers to get the same yields out of crops. And a lot of that climate plays a, a part of that. Some of it is drought. Some of it is that we are destroying the health of soils. So we're already seeing that, that playing out quite a bit. And, you know, one of the really scary things is that we have no way of knowing as we're losing species exactly which ones are going to be the tipping point for a particular ecosystem because they rely on each other in such an, an intricate dance that makes this all work. And when we lose one, you know, we've seen a lot recently about so many insects going extinct. And so many people don't think about insects or have an innate aversion to insects, but we need insects. We need insects for pollination and for the health of ecosystems and to feed the other animals that people do often care about more leading up through birds and, and mammals and on up the chain. We had an absolutely shocking call into this program about a decade ago and it led to this amazing conversation this truck driver called in and he said you know i've been driving trucks here across the united states coast to coast for 30 years and over the last five years or so he said it used to be particularly when i was driving through the south or the midwest that i'd have to stop every three or four hours to clean the bugs off the windshield during the peak periods in summer he said, I've driven most of the summer and I have not once cleaned bugs off my windshield. And all these people started calling in from all over the country saying, I don't see the bugs anymore. I'm not seeing the bugs anymore. And then it was like, I'm not seeing birds anymore. And it's like, it, you, you, you engage people in these conversations and they go, yeah, you know, actually, now that I think about it, stuff is vanishing all around us. Yeah, and so many of us who grew up, you know, with 
with these amazing species that were part of our summer, like fireflies and monarch butterflies that used to be pretty ubiquitous across the United States. We're just not seeing them anymore. Their, their numbers have plummeted so much. So how does this tie to, to humans consuming too many resources? How do we define overconsumption and how does that tie into what we're talking about in this, terms of this loss of biodiversity? Well, as you mentioned earlier, you know, right now we're using way more resources than the planet can replenish in a year. As you said, most people cite the number about one and a half times. If everybody lived like we do in the U.S., we'd need five planets. We still only have one, so that creates a problem. Every human on the planet requires a few basic needs, requires food, shelter, water, some form of energy for, you know, for heat, transportation, and that sort of thing. And every time, all of that takes resources from the planet. This is all resources that we are sharing with wildlife. And of course, in some places, particularly here in the U.S., we're using those resources particularly irresponsibly. Um, so we see it through the fossil fuel extraction and, and the use of fossil fuels and all the pollution that goes with it that not only affects human health, that also affects wildlife. We see it through the impacts of climate change that are greatly altering habitats and, and changing, changing food chains for a lot of animals. And we see it particularly through agriculture as well. Agriculture takes up a significant portion of the planet, and it's responsible for really across the board of environmental metrics. It's one of the worst players. It's a massive amount of pesticide use, which directly affects those bugs that we were talking about. And we see land being destroyed, converted to these monocrops, or being used for pasture land, and that gets rid of the habitat that animals from those insects on up through carnivores need. And so everything that we take from the planet for our own survival is taking it from wildlife, and we really lost that balance where we're able to coexist with them. So Robert Mueller came out and said, basically, I'm not going to clear Donald Trump of anything, which reminds us how dysfunctional our political system is and how corrupt Essentially, I mean, we've got an entire administration, an entire political party, the Republicans, who literally will not acknowledge global climate change, much less overpopulation or resource depletion or things like that. At the level of policy, if we had sane policies around consumption, around the production of food, around the use of technology, how would those things change, in your opinion, if we were looking at this in the context not of how do we make the Koch brothers another billion dollars so that they can donate money to our party? Instead of that, we were asking the question, what should our policies be to maintain the survivability of the human species on Earth, along with the biological diversity necessary to support our population? It would have to start with asking that question is what actually matters for our survival and for the survival of wildlife, not starting with the question of how do we make the most money? So, you know, at the root of all is, you know, frankly, we need to disrupt capitalism because that whole idea that we can continue having infinite growth on a finite planet, it simply doesn't work. Um, you know, and, and we're seeing the impacts of that now, but because it's such a short-sighted system, they just continue passing the same policies. So we would need to start with looking at, you know, if you look at our food system, the farm bill is a mess. It's subsidizing all the wrong things. It's perpetuating monocrop, this monocrop system um, that is, that's gearing towards feeding livestock rather than feeding people directly. And so we would need to start with some of these really big fundamental policies that we have, like the Farm Bill, and shifting, you know, shifting the, the subsidies so that it's actually supporting smaller to mid-sized farmers who are growing regionally appropriate foods that require less resources than what's currently being grown. We would see a massive shift 
an immediate shift, obviously, away from supporting fossil fuels and investing that all into renewable energy and really clean, local, democratized renewable energy, talking about things like community solar, not just saying, well, let's invest in these massive infrastructures that will continue to destroy habitat, but thinking, how do we do this in the best possible way? Because it is possible. So what's the role of technology in all this? I mean, you mentioned solar power, for example, wind power, ways of acquiring energy without burning fossil fuels. And I think we're on the cusp of those power systems being able to generate enough power that they could run the blast furnaces necessary to make the steel for the blades for the turbines or to make the glass for the covers of the, you know, and the, and the rare earths and whatnot in the solar panels. We're kind of on the verge of this extraordinary entirely renewable system. But what role does technology play in all this? How should we think about it? When you look at something like renewable energy, like you said, we're very close and there's way more that we could be doing than we currently are, especially if you start looking at how do we reduce energy waste so we don't have to produce as much energy because we waste a lot of energy in our buildings and in our systems that aren't nearly as efficient as they could be, especially when you look at things like heating and electricity. And so I think, you know, when we look at at that balance of let's reduce waste so we don't have to produce so much more and then let's look at what that gap really is. And it's fairly small and the places where we need you know, any sort of technology advance are pretty targeted in areas like storage for solar energy. You know, we need to upgrade our energy infrastructure, but that needs to happen anyways, frankly. But beyond that, you know, we still have so many people who are expecting technology to save us all that, well, we don't need to buy into solar. There's going to be something else that makes fossil fuels clean that will somehow produce more fossil fuels than Oh, they're advertising on TV right now. I mean, right. And there's this idea of that, that we don't have to change anything. We just have to wait for this technological miracle. But that's completely false because we already have the technology we need. We've made so many advances in renewable energy and solar in particular that we can start this transition. And we really have to start this transition off of fossil fuels now. When we look at agriculture, you see a lot of people talking about like, well, what are ways that we can kind of tweak the way that we do agriculture to mitigate some of the effects? But we already know that certain foods like plant based foods in particular require far less resources than animal-based foods, and we can shift our diet. (laughs) Right? That plant-based diet is really such an important piece of this. And, you know, we've seen this from climate scientists, too, who now are more and more starting to talk about food because they realize we are in such a crisis point that we can't just be talking about energy. We need to be talking about everything across all sectors, how we minimize our impact. And even talking about population issues, we already have excellent birth control. We have reproductive health care that's available. We just have to commit to making it available. And that's really where, to go back to the policy question of where it needs to start, is not just our survival, but talking about that equity and that equality question. Because, you know, even here in the United States, when you talk about access to reproductive health care and contraception, we think, well, you know, we're fine because we're below replacement rate fertility, but nearly half of women in the United States, nearly half of all pregnancies in the United States are still unplanned. There are still major contraceptive deserts. So we need to really focus on the technologies and solutions that exist and make sure that we are getting them out to everybody. Yeah, and all these things tie together. It's, exactly. it's, it's much like biological diversity all ties together. <laughs> right? Stephanie Feldstein, the Population and Sustainability Director at the Center for Biological Diversity. Biologicaldiversity.org is the website. Stephanie, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Great talking with you. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? 
Will you have enough time to rebuild or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the Fred chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. Our book club selection today is titled The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption by Dar Jamail. The dedication of the book, this book is dedicated to the future generations of all species. Know that there were many of us who did what we could. This is from the introduction. The fall lasts long enough that I have time to watch the blue ice race upward, eons of time compressed into glacial ice flashing by in fractions of seconds. I assume I've fallen far enough that I've pulled my climbing partner, Sean, into the crevasse with me. This is what it's like to die in the mountains, a voice in my head tells me. Just as my mind completes that thought, the rope wrenches my climbing harness up. I bounce languidly up and down as the dynamic physics inherent in the rope play themselves out. Somehow, Sean has checked my fall while still on the surface of the glacier. I brush the snow and chunks of ice from my hair, arms, and chest and pull down the sleeves of my shirt. Finding my glacier glasses hanging from the pocket of my climbing bib, I tuck them away. I check myself for injuries and incredibly find none. Assessing my situation, I find there's no ice shelf nearby to ease the tension from the rope so Sean can begin setting up a pulley system to extract me. I look down, nothing but blackness. I look at the wall of blue ice directly in front of me, take a deep breath, and peer up into the tiny hole into which I'd fallen when I'd punched through the snow bridge spanning the crevasse. The same bridge Sean had crossed without incident as we made our way up Alaska's Matanuska Glacier toward Mount Marcus Baker in the Chugach Range. You get to look down one more time, then that's it, I tell myself out loud. Again, there's only a black void yawning beneath me, swallowing everything, even sound. My stomach clenches. I remind myself to breathe. Sean, are you okay, I yell as I clamp my mechanical ascenders to the rope in preparation to climb up. Yeah, I'm all right, but I'm right on the edge, he calls back. I can't set an anchor to get out of the system, so don't ascend. We're going to have to wait for the other guys to catch up. Time passes. The onset of hyperthermia means I can't control my body from periodically shaking. To ignore my fear of dying, I gaze meditatively at the ice a few feet in front of me as I dangle. The miniature air pockets found in the whiter ice near the top of the glacier have long since been compressed, producing the mesmerizing beauty of centuries-old turquoise ice. Slightly deeper into the crevasse is ice that has been there since long before the Neanderthals. I hang suspended in silence, mindful not to move out of fear of dislodging Sean. Giving my full attention to the ice immediately within my vision, I focus on how the gently refracting light from above seems to penetrate and reflect off the perfectly smooth wall. Staring into it, the blue seems infinite. Despite the danger of my situation, the glacier's beauty calms me. Delicate snowflakes and their infinite possibilities of form land on mountainous terrain. Under its own weight, the snow is compressed into glaciers that scour and shape the face of the earth. Countless millions of tons of weight, aided by the force of gravity, push and pull these frozen rivers downhill, carving out cirques and troughs 
from uplifted geologic plates and sculpting the majestic heights of mountains that I have been drawn to since I was young. Eventually, our other two teammates arrive and work to extract Sean from his perch just six inches from the edge of the crevasse. All three of them set up a three-way pulley system. Laboriously, my teammates begin to haul me up, inches at a time, out of what nearly became my tomb. I continue to focus on the delicately shifting blades of blue in the ice as I draw closer to the surface, mesmerized by its raw beauty. My teammates pull me up to the lip of the crevasse. I repeatedly plunge the pick of my ice axe into the snow and haul myself out, never before as grateful for being on top of a glacier. I stand and gaze up at the mountain to the west, behind which the sun has just set. Snow plumes stream off one of its ridges, turned into ruddy red ribbons by the setting snow. Snowflakes flicker as they float into space. As relief floods my shivering body, I roar in gratitude and relief. Utterly overwhelmed by being alive and surrounded by the beauty of the mountain world, I hug each of my three climbing partners. Now safe, it sinks in how close to death I've been. That was Earth Day 2003. In hindsight, I believe the emotion I felt then stemmed in part from something else, a deeper consciousness that the ice that I had seen, which had existed for eons, was vanishing. Seven years of climbing in Alaska had provided me with a front row seat from where I could witness the dramatic impact of human-caused climate disruption. Each year, we found the toe of the glacier had shriveled further. Each year, for the annual early ice season festival on this glacier, we found ourselves hiking further up the crusty, frozen mud left behind by rapidly retreating terminus. Each year, the parking lot was moved closer to the glacier, only to be left further away as the ice withdrew. Even sections of Denali, which stands over 20,000 feet tall and is roughly 250 miles from the Arctic Circle, had undergone startling changes the ice of its glaciers was disappearing quickly. Our planet is rapidly changing and what we are witnessing is unlike anything that has occurred in nature or even geologic history. The heat trapping nature of carbon dioxide and methane, both greenhouse gases, has been scientific fact for decades. And according to NASA, there is no question that increased levels of greenhouse gases must cause the earth to warm in response. Evidence shows that greenhouse gas emissions are causing the earth to warm 10 times faster than it should. And the ramifications of this are being felt quite literally throughout the entire biosphere. The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption by Dar Jamail. Welcome back in the studio with us, Dar Jamail. He's also the author of Beyond the Green Zone, Dispatches from an Embedded Journalist in Occupied Iraq. His new book, The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption. How did your experience in Iraq inform your thinking about climate change? Well, I had to learn how to figure out how to live something akin to a normal life amidst all of the knowledge of how much devastation had happened in Iraq and a lot of it that I'd witnessed firsthand. And that meant dealing with trauma and PTSD. And I think now with the climate crisis, with the political crisis, with the economic crisis, with the overpopulation crisis, overconsumption, we are besieged daily. Open up your browser and you're traumatized. So how are each one of us going to deal with that? And working on this book and reporting on the climate now for almost 10 years, I've had to kind of pull out some of those old tools that I learned dealing with the trauma from Iraq with this. And I think all of us needs 
to learn how to do that. And that means taking a news fast, even if it's one day a week, spending a lot more time outside, remembering why we're doing what we do, because everything's so overwhelming and it's so easy to think, well, if I'm attached to the results of my actions, then I'm probably not going to get out of bed in the morning. And so I've had to learn to find a new motivation to, to do the work that I do. I've had people call into the program and just kind of go off on, we all need to drive electric cars and we all need to eat vegan. You know, it's something I do. And Louise and I do, actually. And one of our kids, too. And my response is very often, yeah, that's all good. But if everybody in the United States tomorrow started driving electric cars and eating vegan, we'd still have this crisis Mm -hmm. that we might shave a little bit off the edges but we'd still have this crisis. There is virtually nothing that any of us can do at the level of an individual that is going to have a macro effect. It's only going to be a micro effect, a, a, you know, a relatively local effect, or it's going to diminish this, this much larger train that we're all riding on, that we have to be doing things at the level of policy. And that's where, uh, you know, I look at Greta Thunberg, this, you know, little 16-year-old now, I think she is, or maybe she's 14, whatever, you know, she might even be younger than that, uh, you know, who started out this thing a year or two ago of I'm not going to go to school on Fridays and just sitting there in is it Denmark. I, I, I forget which country, Sweden, wherever Sweden. she's from, Sweden. Yeah. She gave this speech over the weekend where she said, I have talked to the number of politicians who have told me that panic is not useful and that I am promoting panic. And she said, but when your house is on fire, it's entirely appropriate to feel panic. And it doesn't have to paralyze you, but you do need to act fast or you're going to die. Are we there? The house is on fire, without a doubt. I mean, in all the topics that I just mentioned, I mean, we are in a planetary crisis. When we look at how fast everything's ramping up, how fast we're losing species, how fast we're losing our ability to feed ourselves, our house is absolutely on fire. I couldn't agree with her more. I personally don't think panic is probably the best approach. I think we need to find a deeper resolve in ourselves to figure out, okay, what is the way I feel drawn to try to have the most impact for good? And I've had to learn how to do that in a way where I'm unattached to results and then realize that I have a moral obligation, no matter what, every day to get up and figure out what's the best way I can serve the planet today and then do my best along those lines. And then that, to me, is a very sustainable way of doing this because it's so overwhelming. If I look at the big picture for too long on any topic on any given day, I am completely overwhelmed and I know that I'm not alone on that. So I think we all need to find a very deep, clear resolve. And for me, I've gotten that from going out and spending time on the planet and getting quiet and really listening and seeing what comes up. And my most recent example of that was that's how I got the idea for this book. And then now I'm going to get ready to do it again to figure out what to do next. And I think each person, we're going to have the most impact we can have if we come at it in that way to kind of open ourselves up in a way where really, okay, how's the planet going to use me to try to help itself today? The way that I've been pursuing this is uh, to ask the question, who are the politicians that I can promote or support or encourage who might do something about this? Is that a reasonable first step? I think that is a fabulous thing, and you are intensely well-positioned to do that. And I think, like you mentioned earlier, if we were going to really shave some of the edges off of this crisis, only through government policy, massive radical changes would that happen. Yeah, there you go. Dar Jamal, his new book, The End of Ice. Check it out. It's brilliant. Dar, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Great Tom. having you in the studio. Amanda in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Amanda, what's up? 
Hey, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I'm just calling about your discussion of climate change and the effects of veganism. Yeah. I've actually been vegan for about two years now, but it was a pretty radical change for myself because I'd never heard of anything like that kind of plant-based diet. And now that I'm on it, I have to say that I do not think about my weight. I do not consider it as something that I have to stress about. The benefits of veganism as just a healthy anti-carcinogen has changed my life. Yeah. Did your I, weight stabilize or reduce as a consequence of becoming a vegan? Uh, reduced. It's been reduced about 20 pounds, and I also just rarely think about having to diet. I just don't. Yeah. I eat yeah. primarily plant-based foods and avoid all dairy and meat. And the more I read up on facts, 50% of the water use around the world goes to agriculture, livestock, livestock right. feed, along those lines, and Instagram or other social media outlets. If you go in there, it, there's such a thriving community of activists. Yeah, and, and living in Portland, I don't know if you've ever been to Blossoming Lotus. Uh, Louise and I were there Friday for lunch. There are a bunch of vegan restaurants in this town, by and by, that are just spectacular. And they're entirely, I mean, literally everything on the menu is vegan. Amanda, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. And great points all. Very well made. Marty in Evergreen Park, Illinois. Hey, Marty, what's up? I just wanted to preface this by saying one of my favorite papers I wrote in college was the positive feedback, the two most dangerous words in the English language. Right. Basically, uh, you know, uh, assuming that the uh, Earth can exports more carbon than it can take in. But that being said, you know, one of the things that concerns me is that, you know, tardigrades can live on the harshest environments on Earth and in outer space and still survive. So my thinking is that if the weather doesn't kill us, superbugs will. And, uh, you know, they're already evolving to be resistant to all the forms of uh uh, you know, antibiotics that we have in place right now, which is part of the reason why I don't eat meat at all, because I don't want to, you know, aid that uh, that process. Um, right. They haven't for like 20 years. But I'm thinking that, you know, if the weather doesn't kill us, superbugs will. What are your thoughts? You know, I think the superbugs are a challenge. Lori Garrett wrote a book about that kind of a scenario. And I don't think it's going to kill us. I, you know, I think that we're increasingly facing serious challenges. We now have fungi, this strain of candida now that has mutated to the point where it resists all antifungals and it's starting to kill people systemically. We have bacteria that are, in fact, some of the venereal diseases are now multi-drug resistant and tuberculosis as well. There's a form of multi-drug resistant TB. So we may well be back at some point fairly soon back to where we were 150 years ago before antibiotics. Some epidemiologists might even argue that that would be a good thing because we're just continually, our massive use of antibiotics is just continually breeding new strains of superbugs. They're evolving faster than we do because they go through a thousand lifespans in an hour and we go through a thousand lifespans in, in you know, a hundred thousand years. So this is a challenge. It's a very, very real challenge, but humans also do mutate. I mean, the, the Black Plague wiped out a third of us in Europe, at least a third of the people living in Europe. And... Um, some of those people developed an adaptation, a mutation that made them resistant to the Black Plague. Turns out it also made them resistant to HIV. They can't get HIV or they can't get AIDS if they're infected with HIV. So absolute human extinction, I think, really is more likely to be associated with a massive climate event that kills off all life 
or the majority of life on Earth rather than superbugs. But you know, Marty, spot on. It's a big issue. And Lori Garrett and people like her who are talking about it, there's a number of, there's actually another book came out last year with a similar postulate. We need to be very concerned about this. We need to do something about it. Marty, thanks for the call. And time for geeky science. Indeed, there's our geeky science music. This is absolutely concerning. When you have antibiotics at low levels, or you know, at high levels, it's even worse, but even at low levels in the environment, they cause bacteria to mutate in response to the presence of the antibiotics to resist the antibiotics, right? This produces what's called antibiotic resistant strains of bacteria. We now have, for example, strains of gonorrhea traveling around the world. They've popped up in the U.S. in a few places. It's been a problem in Southeast Asia for some years that are resistant to pretty much everything, uh, you know, uh, antibiotic-wise. You get this disease and you will die, just like you would have before antibiotics. I mean, we're back before Louis Pasteur. It is of scientific consequence to find out what's the antibiotic level in the environment, in the biosphere. And literally for the first time, which shocks me, I, I, that shocks me more than anything else, they actually did a study and looked at rivers in 72 countries on six continents. And what they found was that in 65% of these sites, there were antibiotics. And in many cases, the antibiotics radically exceeded even what we call safe levels. In fact, the uh, article, this is from sciencedaily.com, is titled, Antibiotics Found in Some of the World's Rivers Exceeds Safe Levels, Global Study Finds by Catherine Paddock. Concentrations of antibiotics found in some of the world's rivers exceed safe levels by up to 300 times. The first ever global study has discovered. Metrodazole, I'm not sure how to pronounce these things, which is used to treat bacterial infections. At one site, Bangladesh was 300 times greater than the safe level. The River Thames in London, researchers discovered a maximum total antibiotic concentration of 233 nanograms per liter, 170 times higher in Bangladesh. The most prevalent antibiotic was trimethoprim, which was detected at 307 of the 711 sites tested and is typically used for urinary tract infections. Cipro was found at 51 places. This is not good. I mean, this is not good. And I am guessing that it may be in the third world a lot. You know, some of this is coming from people just routinely using antibiotics because you don't have to go to a doctor or a pharmacy to get them. You can just buy them over the counter. But in the first world and in the developing world, I'm guessing that these antibiotics that are making their way into the water are making their way into the water because they were originally fed to animals. We use antibiotics routinely in what's referred to euphemistically as animal intensive agriculture. I would call it animal holocaust, animal concentration camps, you know, where you have millions of animals, they can't move, they're living in their own waste, miserable lives, children are taken away at birth, the mothers mourn for days and days and days. And on top of all that, we're literally on a daily basis feeding them antibiotics because it makes them fatten up faster and reduces the chance of their getting infections. It is just so wrong. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy, just quite simply, I mean, bottom line, does not function without a high level of citizen engagement. And we've got to, we have got to turn out in this election. If you're not registered to vote, get there and get out there and get active. Tag, you're it. 
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 